Well, it's a joy to be here with you today. Uh, my name is uh, Eric Maynard and my wife, Julie, and I come to you by way of uh, Flushing, Michigan. And uh, they talked about Grand Blanc. I pastored Berean Baptist Church um, for three and a half years there and uh, got acquainted with uh, Mark Chansky, who uh, preached a conference for us uh, for the Reformed Baptist Network. And I count him a dear friend, a dear brother. In fact, he called me this morning and prayed with me on the way out. So grateful to be here with you today. Well, our text this morning is from the book of Luke, chapter 19. And we will be reading verses 28 through 40. Luke, chapter 19, and the verses 28 through 40. After he said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he approached Bethphage and Bethany near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you. There as you enter you will find a colt tied on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, you shall say, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told him, told them rather. As they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? They said, the Lord has need of it. They brought it to Jesus and they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, in the time that is before us this morning, I pray that your Spirit would work in our hearts in such a way that our minds would be receptive to your holy word and our hearts responsive to it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, praise is a very powerful thing. We see it every four years at uh, political rallies, of candidates running for office, large crowds gather to cheer on their favorite candidate in anticipation that they will win public office and change the course of the state or the nation. Exuberant praise is given as they gather. We see praise as well at sporting events as thousands of people gather to watch their favorite team compete against their rivals on their season's journey. 
in the hope that they will win a historic world championship. But what happens when the unexpected happens? When the candidate loses the election or the team loses its dream season, great disappointment sets in. And often dissatisfaction is voiced. And the candidate and the teams that lose are discarded and set aside in hopes that the next season a winner will emerge. Well, the account before us is what is often called the Lord's triumphal entry. And in our text, we see a massive crowd surrounding Jesus with palm branches and crying out in loud praise. What was happening? Why was it happening? And was this joyful, boisterous celebration, was it appropriate? Well, prior to this joyous day, Jesus had been ministering in a region east of Jerusalem, east of the Jordan River, in a place called Perea. Just a few weeks prior before Palm Sunday, Jesus visited the village of Bethany, where he met with Mary and Martha because his dear friend Lazarus had died. He went to the home, and then he went out to the tomb, and he raised a man from the dead who had been deceased for four days. Well, the news of this event spread like wildfire. So Jesus traveled north again into Galilee for a brief time, and then traveled back over to Perea. And he began to emphasize to his disciples that he would suffer at the hands of the Romans, that he would be crucified, and three days later he would rise again. However, the disciples would not accept this, as they had the aspirations that Jesus would be a military conqueror, a king who would throw off the Roman yoke and set up an earthly messianic kingdom in Israel that would rule the world. Well, as Jesus moved toward Jerusalem, he enters the town of Jericho, which was in a very low area on the Jordan River. It's a beautiful place if you even go there today. It's a place of palm trees and fresh water. At that time, it was a checkpoint of entry into the region of Judea. As Jesus and his disciples began their trek into toward Jericho, on the outskirts of, a, of the city, there was a, a blind beggar who heard Jesus coming. And he cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stops. And he goes to this man. 
and he heals him. His name was Bartimaeus. Well, from there, he moves into Jericho. And as he's traversing down the main thoroughfare of the city, he stops and he looks up into a sycamore tree and he sees this little tax collector out on a limb. To everyone's astonishment, Jesus says to him, Zacchaeus, you come down. I'm going to your house today. And sure enough, he and his disciples go to this man's house with his friends. And he works the miracle of regeneration in this man's heart. Well, the next day, Jesus takes the next leg of the trip. And he, is, and he and his disciples start climbing the hill toward Jerusalem. And on Friday before Palm Sunday, just before sunset when the Sabbath begins, he enters Bethany again, about five miles outside Jerusalem. And he lodges with a man whom he had healed earlier named Simon the leper. And the next day being the Sabbath Jesus and his disciples, along with Simon the leper, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, share a meal together in Simon's home. And Mary breaks this costly perfume and anoints Jesus. Well, the common people begin to hear about this, and they come out of curiosity not just to see Jesus, but Simon, or or Lazarus as well. Well, this brings us now to Sunday in our scripture passage, from where we learn that Jesus sends two of his disciples to the village of Bethphage to prepare for him an unbroken colt of a donkey. Now, Jesus is fully aware of what he is doing He's sending a message. He's presenting himself to everyone in Israel as their promised Messiah. He had arrived to accomplish his mission, the mission given to him by his father. But it wasn't a mission that they were anticipating. No, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. He came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Yes, he is the Messiah. And he would atone for the death, for the sins rather, by his death, for the sins of the elect. Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The word was out. Jesus was making a triumphal entry. Great anticipations building. A processional start. The Messiah had finally arrived. And the people begin to fill the air with jubilant 
praise. My theme this morning, beloved, is the king worthy of our praise. In the time before us, we're going to look at four headings. Number one, the praise described. Secondly, the praise declared. Thirdly, the praise decried. And fourthly, the praise deserved. We begin in verse 37 with the praise described. Notice what it says. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen. Note that this praise was immediate, immediate. The crowd could not wait for Jesus to enter the eastern gate before they start thronging him and shouting, Hosanna. They're glorifying him. Their adoration was sudden. There was no hesitation whatsoever. They were immediately praising him as Messiah. Secondly, it was concerted. Concerted, rather. It was unified. As John Gill, our Reformed Baptist forefather, wrote, he says, the whole crowd of disciples that were there, not only the twelve, but the large company that followed Christ out of Galilee, they were joined by more in Judea as they came along, some of them going before them and some others coming behind Jesus and the group. So this is just a mass gathering that's spontaneously forming as Jesus is on this colt of a donkey moving toward Jerusalem. William Hendrickson pointed out in his commentary, at this point it is important to take note of the fact that the crowd that accompanied Jesus as he started out from Bethany does not remain the only one that participates in the activities pertaining to the triumphal entry. A caravan of pilgrims had arrived at Jerusalem previously, having heard that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead and was now on his way toward the city. These people came pouring out of the eastern gate to meet him. With fronds cut from palm trees, they went forth to welcome Jesus. And having done so, they turned around, as it were, and led Jesus down the western slope of the Mount of Olives and so into the city. Can you imagine being there? I mean, this was massive, a massive outpouring of adoration and praise. And thirdly, this was a joyous assembly. The whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God Joyfully, it says, joyfully. Listen, we are called, brothers and sisters, to rejoice and praise our Savior and King. He is worthy of all our praise. But sometimes, if we're honest, it's hard, isn't it? It gets hard. Difficult providences enter into our lives. Perhaps it's physical suffering, chronic pain, disease, emotional pain, hurts, 
perhaps the loss of a loved one. Yet the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He has not forsaken you, dear child of God. He is as close to you today as he was the very moment you were born again. I recently read a passage from the Faith's Checkbook by Charles Spurgeon, and he's speaking about in that particular passage from Isaiah 44, 21. He says, Thou art my servant, O Israel. Thou shalt not be forgotten of me. Sometimes we feel forgotten and forsaken, but the Lord never forgets his people, nor does he forsake them. This is what he said. Our Jehovah cannot so forget his servants as to cease to love them. He chose them not for a time, but forever. He knew what they would be when he called them into the divine family. He blots out their sins like a cloud. And we may be sure that he will not turn them out of doors for iniquities which he has blotted out. It would be blasphemy to imagine such a thing. He will not forget them so as to cease to think of them. One forgetful moment on the part of our God would be our ruin. Therefore, he says, thou shalt not be forgotten of me. Men forget us. Those whom we have benefited turn against us. We have no abiding place in the fickle hearts of men. But God will never forget one of his true servants. He binds himself to us, not by what we do for him, but by what he has done for us. We have been loved too long and bought at too great a price to be now forgotten. Praise described, it's immediate, it's concerted, it's joyous. Fourthly, powerful. The whole crowd of disciples, it says, began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. As this large crowd of people is descending toward the city of Jerusalem, they are praising God joyfully with all of their might. This was praise which was heartily unto the Lord. I've had the privilege of attending Shepherd's Conference three times. I love that conference. It's about 6,000 pastors singing on top of their lungs the praises of God. It's a magnificent time. And I think of what it's going to be like in heaven one day when we are around the throne of our king, praising the Lord, praising the Lord. Heartily, 
Now listen very carefully. Our praise must always be based upon who the Lord has declared himself to be and not upon what we want him to be. And we're going to see in this passage that this was a problem. Our praise is not to be fickle. Rather, it is to be consistent, heartfelt worship for Jesus, for who he truly is. And our lips as well as our lives should declare the praise of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what greater miracle to praise him for than our salvation. Lewis Albert Banks tells a story of an elderly Christian man, a fine singer, who learned that he had cancer of the tongue and that surgery was required. In the hospital, after everything was ready for the operation, the man said to the doctor, Are you sure, doctor, I'll never be able to sing again? The surgeon shook his head, couldn't answer the question. He just shook his head. The patient then asked if he could sit up for just a moment. He said, I've had many great times singing praises to my Lord. And now you tell me I can never sing again. I have one song that will be my last. It will be of gratitude and praise to the Lord. There in the doctor's presence, the man sang softly the words of Isaac Watts' hymn. I'll praise my maker while I've got breath. And when my voice is lost in death, praise shall employ my nobler power. My days of praise shall ne'er be passed, while life and thought and being last, or immortal immortality endures. So the praise described. Secondly, we have the praise declared here in the 38th verse. Notice they're shouting, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. This anthem really consists of three parts, as Hendrickson points out. First of all, they're crying out, Blessed is the coming one, from Psalm 118, verse 26. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. This is clearly a messianic reference. They are expecting him to fulfill messianic prophecy. And this is indicative of the next line. The king, you are the king who's coming in the name of the Lord. Jesus was indeed the king. He was the Messiah. He is the king. He is the Messiah. While he was on earth, he utilized the messianic title, the son of man, when referencing himself. In fact, the woman at the well said, Messiah's going to come. John 4, and what did Jesus say? I am he. However, the disciples here and the crowd, most of them, 
the majority of them, had a preconceived idea as to what they wanted Jesus to do that was radically different than what he declared his mission to be. Yes, they were correct, the disciples were, in their profession that he was the Son of God, the King of Israel. However, they did not heed his continued announcement that he would lay down his life as a ransom for many and that he would indeed rise again from the grave the third day. This was not in their conception. This was not their conception, rather, of the Messiah's identity and mission. Rather, the disciples and the multitude had in view a Messiah that would restore the kingdom of David and deliver Israel from Roman bondage, bringing in a glorious, glorious earthly reign. And then the phrase, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The crowd's acclamation resembles that of the angels at Christ's birth. However, the peace they were proclaiming, listen, was not a peace between God and man, which Jesus would achieve, but a peace that would be manifested through Messiah's restoration of the glory of Israel and the throne of David. My friends, how important it is that our praise of Christ be grounded in Scripture. I was very encouraged today. Two reasons. Well, three reasons. I was preaching in a Reformed Baptist church. That's always encouraging. Secondly, we arrived at the Sunday school hour a few minutes late. And there were a lot of people here. And thirdly, you were going through the shorter catechism. I'm just, wow. Wow. That is a blessing. It's a blessing to my soul to see a flock so serious about Scripture. You have a hunger for Christ, you have a hunger to know him based upon the word of God. God's going to bless you for that. He's going to bless you for that. But in our life's experience, listen, we will leave this place and we go out into our daily lives. We have to keep that focus. Jesus is who he says he is. And he never changes, and he loves us. We are his covenant people if we're saved by his grace through faith in him. And we cannot allow difficult providences to move us away from praising him and become despondent and discouraged and disgruntled and complain. We need to praise him for who he is, and what he has done and is doing, and not in who we want him to be in our flesh or want him to do for what he has said he is. Now, notice thirdly, we see the praise decried. 
Some of the Pharisees, verse 39 in the crowd, said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Listen, the Pharisees, you know this, they resented Jesus. And this outpouring of praise absolutely enraged them. They were jealous of Jesus. They were not at all spiritually in tune with what the Father was doing. It was all external. It was fake. It was just an outward religion. There was nothing of the heart in it. They were solely concerned with one thing, maintaining the strongholds of their influence and their control over the people. And Jesus was a threat to that. And they wanted him stopped. Though they witnessed his preaching and his miracles, their heart remained hardened like stone with jealousy. Jealousy. The sin of jealousy, brothers and sisters, sometimes affects Christians who get their focus off of who Christ is and onto what they want him to be or what they want to see happen. Listen, believers are called to strive together, not against each other. Philippians 1.27 says, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. We are co-laborers for Jesus, and there is no place for jealousy in the ministry. Humility is needed. I so wanted to go to the ministerial conference, and I was unable to attend it with our dear brother Conrad and Belway over in Grand Rapids in March. Oh, I wish I could have gone. It was on humility in the ministry. But I think of this, that we as Christians are called to this as we live for the Lord. And it takes the power of the Spirit, yes, to, to do that. But in Philippians chapter 2, we're called, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, and those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
F.B. Meyer was a preacher in the 1800s at the same time that Spurgeon was. In fact, Spurgeon's church and G. Campbell Morgan's church were a very close distance from Meyer's church. And he had this to say about G. Campbell Morgan. He says, it was easy to pray for the success of Morgan when he was in America. But when he came back to England and took a church near me, it was something different. The old Adam in me was inclined to jealousy. But I got my heel upon his head, and whether I felt right toward my friend, I determined to act right. So my church gave a reception for him, and I acknowledged that if it was not necessary for me to preach Sunday evenings, I would dearly love to go and hear him myself. Well, that made me feel right toward him. But just see how the dear Lord helped me out of my difficulty. There was Charles Spurgeon preaching wonderfully on the other side of me. He and Mr. Morgan were so popular and drew such crowds that our church caught the overflow. And we had all that we could accommodate. Rather than being fault finders, as Richard Sibbs said, let us keep a catalog of God's blessings. Jesus is worthy of all praise and glory. It's his church, his ministry. We are his bondservants. And finally, the praise deserved. Verse 40. But Jesus answered these Pharisees who were complaining. He said, I tell you, if these become silent, these people, the stones will cry out. It was appropriate for them to praise him. He is the Messiah. He is the King. Matthew Henry says, Whether men praise Christ or not, he will and shall and must be praised. If these should hold their peace and not speak the praises of the Messiah's kingdom, the stones would immediately cry out rather than Christ should not be praised. This was, in effect, literally fulfilled when upon men's reviling Christ upon the cross, instead of praising him and his own disciples seeking into a profound silence, the earth did quake and the rocks rent. Pharisees would silence the praises of Christ, but they cannot gain their point, for as God can out of stones raise up children unto Abraham, so he can out of the mouths of those children perfect praise. Indeed, the praise given to the Lord that day was right because he is the King, the Messiah. And he received this praise openly as he was declaring himself to be the King of Kings. But again, this praise was to be rooted in who Jesus declared himself to be, not in what the masses wanted him to be. That is why a few days later, many in the crowd, the very same crowd, would cry out, crucify him, crucify him, because he did not do what they expected him to do. However, not all misunderstood who Jesus was. It says that on the next day he entered into Jerusalem, according to Matthew 21. All the city was stirred. Who is this? 
And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. It says, beginning in verse 14, And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done, and listen, the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant. And said to him, do you hear what these little children are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies? You have prepared praise for yourself. All these little children knew who Jesus was. He didn't have to prove himself. They accepted him in childlike faith as the son of David, the king, the Messiah. They believed in him. Jesus said, permit the children to come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And he took them in his arms and began blessing them, laying hands on them. Listen carefully. The kingdom is received through childlike faith in Jesus Christ's person and work on the cross. It is not achieved. It is not made to happen on earth by the efforts of men. It is fundamentally a gift something our Savior gives to his elect because of his great love for the world. It is received like a little child, totally dependent upon the mercy and free grace of God. My prayer for each of you is that you have received Christ and his kingdom in childlike faith. And if you have not, that you would understand that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. For God didn't come into this world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Oh, that the spirit of God would open your heart and your eyes So that you can see, as Scripture says, as Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. All glory, laud, and honor to thee, Redeemer King, to whom the lips of children made sweet hosannas ring. Thou art the King of Israel, thou David's royal son, who in the Lord's name comest, the King and Blessed One. Father, thank you today for sending your Son, the Messiah. And, O Lord, may we praise him We praise you with our whole hearts for who you are and for what you have done. 
And may it never be limited to just times when, things, when times are going well. And may it never be rooted in who we want you to be or in what we want you to do. We certainly have requests and we have needs, but we commit those things to you and we trust you with them and believe in you and trust that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to your purpose. So Lord, I pray you'll bless this dear flock Encourage them and strengthen their faith, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.